I'm Paul Wiegraf, Director of the Delaware Division of the Arts and your host for today. Joining me remotely is Dr. Meredith Height Estevez, oboist and Director of Lumina Arts Incubator. Uh, also, I believe adjunct uh, faculty at the University of Delaware in the music department, correct? Yes. <laughs> well, welcome, Meredith. So glad to have you joining us today. Um, I'm reading your bio. You are, uh, in addition to all of your other accomplishments, you are a 2020 fellowship recipient for the Delaware Division of the Arts. Reading your bio there and reading some information about you on your, your own website. I'm just incredibly impressed with your credentials and noted in one of the write-ups about you that you got your early inspiration by listening to two of my favorites, Barbara Streisand and Aaron Copeland. But let's, uh, <laughs> let's go back to what got you involved in music. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Paul. Um, that, that makes me laugh. It's, it's always funny what, what people who interview you um, end up putting into a, to a, a write-up. But um, yes, I grew up in a small town in South Carolina, and it was rather rural. We were about 45 minutes from any major interstate, so it was really, really backwoods. And so music CDs were hard to come by. There was no CD store. There was no mall. So I ended up with uh, a lot of Broadway because my grandmother was a fan of, of New York City and Broadway shows. And so I somehow got got a hold of uh, some Barbara Streisand <laughs> music. And I, I probably watched Funny Girl a million times in a row. I can probably still like sing every song from her movie, Funny Girl. But I grew up in a town that was, if you think Friday Night Lights, it's, it's very centered around sports. And the high school actually at my high school was the, the stadium at my high school was named after my grandfather. So my family in our small town was sort of thought of as the, the sports family. And so when I came home and told my dad I wanted to play the oboe and quit cheerleading to be in the band, he sort of took a double take. <laughs> but my parents were really supportive and I was able to go to boarding school for the arts in South Carolina. And was it, yeah, was it North Carolina School of the Arts? No, I actually went to, to South Carolina Governor's School for Arts and Humanities, oh, okay. Okay. which is, yeah, which is a small uh, state supported school. And yeah, so I never look back. I, I, it's funny how I chose the oboe. My, my homeroom teacher in sixth grade was a band director who was right out of college. And he was obviously interested in building the program, the band program in this small high school. And he's like, I heard that you sing and play the piano in church. And I was like, how did you hear that? He's like, had his ear to the ground around town. So he, he sort of, he planted the seed there in sixth grade. And um, I finally did join the band at the, in the spring of eighth grade. And he said, well, all the clarinet places are taken. We have too many flute players. You seem kind of like you're a determined person. Do you want to play the hardest instrument in the band? And I was like, yes, that's totally me. Let's do this. <laughs> so that's sort of how I started playing the oboe was to, to prove everybody wrong that it was, that it was a hard instrument. <laughs> I, I wondered how you picked that instrument, because as, as I mentioned to you before we started the show, uh, I have a sister who's played oboe in high school, and and I remember her practicing at home and the, the challenge that, that that instrument presents. Uh, but uh, I, I wondered, too, was there any inspiration? Is it uh, 
Prokofius, Peter and the Wolf, where the oboe is one of the featured animals. Uh, the duck, yes, I think, the, isn't Exactly, yes, yeah, the oboe uh, was the duck. <laughs> I, I, I kind of take that as a sore spot because I... <laughs> I don't, I don't really like our duck qualities. Um, be much better to be a bird like the flute. But, uh, but yeah, I find the oboe to be, you know, it has been a, a difficult, a difficult road on oboe, but in some ways it's, it's because there are fewer oboe players. The, the, com the community for oboe players is really small and tight knit and supportive overall. Mm -hmm. And so I, f I find it to be a great instrument and, you know, it's co sort of funny, like, did I, did my personality, was I born an oboe player or was it my personality shaped as I, you know, became an oboe player as a young person? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I think I'm very quintessentially personality wise, an oboe player. And your next yeah. question is like, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, they're, they're very, you know, let's just say strange um, and interested in perfectionism and mm -hmm. reads have to be perfect and an, an, an eye for symmetry and everything has to be in a row. So that's sort of a little bit about me. So you, you started oboe in, in middle school, basically junior high school. Now, did I'm curious, did you have, uh, oh, and you went to a, a school for, for music. So you had, you had specialists who were, who you studied under. Is that correct? I did. Yes, yeah. I did. I, I was able to, to drive, even before I went to boarding school, my parents drove me an hour and 45 minutes to the nearest big city where there was a, a small liberal arts college where there was a music department and a youth symphony. So it was always trying to get to the city where there were more uh, classical musicians. So, th so that's commitment on both your part and the part of your parents. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, I joke about being from a sports family, but my parents have really gone above and beyond supporting me. Uh, as a musician, even though it, it's not their, it's not what they do for their work, they, um, they're really beyond, above and beyond supportive. Mm -hmm. So you then went on to undergraduate school uh, for music, I presume. I did, yeah. I have, I have a, all my degrees are in oboe, which people think is really funny. A lot of people don't even know you can get degrees in oboe, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially now, a doctorate in oboe. <laughs> right. Now, now your studies and, and your performing have taken you to quite a few places. Talk a little bit about uh, your travels as a result of your music. Sure. Actually, traveling is one of my great passions. And my favorite way to travel is to, to go on tour and to play in orchestras all over the world. I, I, after I left South Carolina, I went to the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, which is part of the University of Cincinnati. And then I did a year abroad on a Fulbright grant to Germany, where I studied with a British oboe soloist and studied Baroque oboe as well in Germany for a year. And after Germany, I came back and uh, attended Yale School of Music for my master's. And I'd always dreamed of moving to New York City. So after Yale, I, <laughs> I set my sights on New York and went to Juilliard for my doctorate. And throughout all of my degrees, uh, it was, especially at Yale, they, they took us on tour to, to Asia and multiple times to, to China and Korea. And uh, throughout the, my opportunities teaching at different universities too, I've been able to go to South America and obviously to Europe. So it's been I, I love to travel and I love to play music uh, for, for audiences all over the world. Are there particular composers that, uh, that you gravitate to or composers whose uh, 
oboe repertoire is more intriguing to you? Well, funny you should ask that because I, I was talking to a friend today about, about oboe music and how maybe it's because compared to the cello or the piano or the violin, our repertoire is like minuscule. A great cellist could go, you know, could play the masterworks their whole life from, you know, when they're good enough to do so to the day they die and still not get through all of them. Yeah. So um, with oboe, you, you sort of play the same pieces a lot. You know, the Saint-Saëns Sonata, uh, the Poulenc Sonata. I, I love uh, Richard Strauss's oboe concerto, of course. Um, Mozart wrote an oboe quartet as well as an oboe concerto. So, of course, you play all these pieces over and over. But it's really in my, in my adult life, post-graduation, and this is kind of what I wrote my dissertation on at Juilliard, I love taking vocal repertoire and transcribing it and rewriting it for the oboe and piano because I feel that it allows me to really pretend like I'm a singer basically and sing through my instrument in those lyrical, beautiful lines uh, that composers wrote for singers. Obviously that can't um, show the text of the music, but I love playing especially French songs and uh, German leader as well on oboe. I, I was going to say that uh, you actually touched on a couple of questions I had in the back of my mind from uh, some of the reading I was doing. You talked about uh, using the oboe to replicate human singing, and, and I guess that's that's where that comes from. And I, the other question I had was um, how much music is transcribed for oboe since there isn't as large of a repertoire uh, initially for oboe? Well, there's... There's a lot of music for the oboe around the period where it was invented, where, where we, where the, and I'll spare you like the history lesson of, of oboe history, but around the Baroque period, so think Handel, uh, that was that was really like what they call the golden age of oboe. And so there's so many compositions uh, during the the Baroque period that are great music, wonderful to play. Uh, but I tend to like the the romantic music better, uh, the music of the, the 20th century. That's sort of what I like the most. And uh, those two periods were sort of the comp major composers began to transition away from from as much chamber music and as much uh, concertos and other solo pieces as they had in the Baroque and, and even in the classical period. So there was, and, and you can, we can talk later offline about why that is, why I believe that was. But um, so yes, I, I don't, I can't give you like a number, but I, mm -hmm. I find it um, interesting to take music that was written for other instruments and just stealing it and putting my name as the arranger on the, on the score. <laughs> Well, I, I want to delve briefly into your work as an oboe instructor, oboe teacher, but let me first remind our listeners that you are tuned into Delaware State of the Arts here on News Radio 1450 WILM and 1410 WDOV. Our guest joining me remotely today is Dr. Meredith Height Estevez, oboist and director of Lumina Arts Incubator. Uh, Meredith, just a, a little bit about your teaching. Uh, I, I'm I always love to ask professional musicians, uh, how does your teaching inform your performing as a musician, and how does your performing inform your teaching? That's a great question. Um, well, I really, I think about my students a lot when I'm performing. Uh, I think I have become a much better performer because I've had to teach others how to do it. And, and so I think about, you know, what things that are second nature to me now, you know, I've, having played the oboe now for 20 years, what, 
you know, when I, when I encounter a student, you sort of see yourself, you know, 10, 15 years earlier. And so uh, I find myself performing a lot with them in mind. And I think in terms of how my performing influences my teaching, I would say that, you know, with, with oboe especially, it's, it's because there are so, so few great oboe players or so few oboe players in the world, we, we need to stick together. And so because we, when you're in a large orchestra, there's only two, maybe three oboe players. Uh, as a performer, I feel solidarity with, with any other double reed player, any other oboist. And so I kind of take that into my teaching too, that any, any young oboist, I feel the need to take them under my wing like my teachers did. Uh, because on stage, there's there's not so many of us there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, with your music, it really has taken you into an interesting direction here locally uh, with the Lumina Arts Incubator. I, I'd like to move in that direction now. Uh, reading some of the background material on you, it is clear that uh, your music is not only a profession for you, but it, it has a much deeper significance for you. Could, could you talk uh, about the Lumina Arts Incubator, and I understand you have a, a podcast series uh, coming out of that as well. Sure, yes. I, you know, what I didn't mention when I was telling you all about the, the schools I'd studied in and the, all the places I've traveled was in how hard it was in some ways to maintain a sense of um, passion for music and consistency in terms of commitment uh, anybody who goes to a conservatory can tell you stories of um, feelings of burnout and competition and just general feelings of dealing with being a perfectionist. And so through Lumina Arts Incubator, this organization that I founded through Grace Church in Wilmington, I wanted to bring other artists into community to really discuss that creative impulse that we all have and how in a lot of ways through the practice of creativity we can become wounded or become burnt out and so we we come together and we study julia cameron's book called the artist way which is uh, the subtitle is uh, a spiritual path to higher creativity so it connects spirituality with creativity and thinking of creativity as a spiritual practice and we gather to do this this course, which is a 12-week course, and uh, it, Lumina really brings artists into community to, to spark joy and to help artists find joy in their, in their creative practice and find a sustainable, healing, creative life. And I feel like there's a lot of work to be done in terms of artist uh, wellness and general mental health. And while I'm not a therapist, I, I do find that the camaraderie again it's similar to to me taking my little oboe students under my wing it, there's there's some camaraderie that we artists have uh and i love being in community with other artists to talk about that and so that's how lumina started uh we we've been doing the artist way we've been doing other small groups at grace church we've uh, done some concerts and some other workshops and other events and now I've pivoted to doing a weekly podcast sort of about, especially here in COVID when all of us are at home anyway, um, how can we find this moment, we, we find an opportunity in this moment to reflect on our creative impulse, 
to potentially recover from any creative block or disappointment or pain that the um, that our careers or lack thereof have have caused. So that's a little bit more about that. the The podcast is called Artists for Joy. Hmm. Now I'm I'm curious. You, you've been talking about this. Uh, uh, talk a little bit, and you've alluded to this. Uh, the, the balance between uh, music as a profession and h- what do you do to just use music as an escape? And how do you, you know, h- how do you use music without focusing on the critical nature of it? Oh, you know, I, I, I need to tune this up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. How, how, how do you do that? Well, I, I first say that I, I recognize that struggle because the more, like the podcast this week is about ear training and about how we train our ears to hear like the tiny little idiosyncrasies and details in music. And so you sort of can never unhear that, right? Mm-hmm. Once you train your ears. And, and for me, the, the freedom has come from remembering who, why I used to love music, like remembering that girl in South Carolina listening to Barbara Streisand and getting that first box set of Aaron Copeland and talking about and journaling about and remembering where that impulse came from in me as a kid. And it also really helps me to not play typical oboe music, but to play music that nobody else, I mean, nobody, I give put that in quotes, like other people are doing that, but to take music that is sort of a blank slate, because there aren't, you know, 50 different recordings of, of this Sonata on Spotify already. I can take a song that who knows if anybody's ever played this on oboe. And it gives me the freedom then to sort of find out what I want to say with it without having all that tradition in the, in the background, in the back of my mind. Yeah. I, I remember uh, an interview many years ago with Beverly Sills, uh, the opera singer. She was uh, Bubbles, I think was her nickname. She was uh, in her vacation home up in New England. And the interviewer commented that there was no piano in her vacation home. And he asked her why. And she said, when I'm up here, I just, I want to get away from opera and I want to get away from, you know, my profession, which it, I was, at first I was taken aback by that thinking, oh, what what a shame. But I, I think it speaks to what you're talking about is that, you know, there, there are times when you, you just get burnt out from music as a profession. But it sounds like you have a really healthy way of, of reconciling that and, and using music not only as a profession, but as, as almost a, a therapy and as, as you suggested, a kind of a spiritual uh, adventure, which I think is, is interesting. Now, you alluded to, to COVID. We've got a couple minutes left. Uh, how have you been coping with COVID and what are you hearing from your fellow musicians and how has music been helping you with that? And where do you see music going in a post COVID world? Wow. Big question. Well, first of all, I'd say, how am I doing? I'm only doing well because my mother-in-law is currently here with us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have a young, a young daughter who's, who's two and a half. And so having, having my mother-in-law here to help is, is absolutely everything. I, I know that it's a really, really hard time for people. I, I have, I'm leading currently two different artist way groups through Lumina Arts now on Zoom. And because they're on Zoom, we're, we're interacting with people all over the world mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. You know, both groups are, are 15 people strong and they come from Seattle and uh, France and literally 
people all over the world are joining the class, which usually is just limited to folks in Wilmington. So I feel like in spite of the, the pain of, you know, canceled gigs and, you know, don't get me wrong. I had, I lost a lot of gigs in the mm-hmm. past couple of months. Yeah. In spite of all that, I, I am choosing to see the, the silver lining of in which ways can, can classical music, especially, which has sort of been stuck in its old ways for centuries. <laughs> how can we, how can we use this as an opportunity uh, to, to process all that's that's happened and to you know make lemonade uh out of out of a really really rough situation and i'm happy to see organizations coming through and still paying colleagues of mine in orchestras that aren't able to work and many organizations are still you know still paying us for gigs that none of us got to play so that is amazing i know other other musicians who aren't as lucky who've been furloughed without health insurance so I, I really hope that um, this helps us all see, especially arts leaders, see that, you know, what we need to do is, is help create a model that's sustainable and that really puts the artist first instead of, you know, selling tickets and um, putting forth an organization or an institution that we should really focus on these, these artists whose dedication and training and time and energy and heart go into the music or the theater or whatever production you're witnessing. Great. Well, in our final 30 seconds, how can our listeners uh, get more information and locate you through Lumina Arts Incubator? Great. So our website is artistsforjoy.org. That's plural artistsforjoy.org. It has our podcast feed as well as how to get involved in our next creative cluster through the Artist Way groups, which start on next one starts on September 1st. So there's still room in that class. Well, Dr. Meredith Height Estevez, thank you so much for joining us today. It really has been a pleasure chatting with you about your, your profession of music and your passion for music. Thanks, Paul.